welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 115th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. First heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, and episode 82, which also featured regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a B.A. in history from Indiana University in 2006. He's an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. If you listen to the last five episodes with Jonathan, you heard us talk about the first two seasons of The Wire. On this episode, we'll be discussing up through the end of season three. So consider this your blanket spoiler alert. Now on to the show. Hello. Hey, Josh. Hey, what's up, Bob? Oh, nothing much. How's it going over there? No, doing okay. I'm trying to get this chicken dinner on PUBG. <laughs> Actually, I just dropped, so I'm going to try to die fast. I'm just going to run in here and try to run over somebody in the car I'm in. <laughs> yeah, so what's up? Oh, nothing much. Yeah, so we're, I guess we're at the same place now. We just finished uh, season three of The Wires. So. Yeah. Hang on, I'm about to get fucked up here. <laughs> I'm trying to punch somebody. They got a shotgun. They can't shoot for shit, though. Man, they haven't hit me yet. Jesus. Sorry, hang on. You're going to have to edit this. <laughs> now they're reloading. Okay. Whoa, oh, they got a hit there. Okay, bitch. All right. Oh, I got a few punches in. Okay, whatever. I'm dead. Cool. All right, I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah, that guy probably thinks I got lucky. They did. Because <laughs> if, if I'd been serious, I would have run them over or gotten a gun. What game was that? Uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. It's uh, you know, you remember that movie we watched back in college, Battle Royale? Oh yeah, Japanese movie. Of course. Yeah, they basically made a game out of it. A mm. hundred, a hundred players drop onto an island. And there can only be one survivor, and there's a constantly closing circle that pushes you towards the center so that everybody's pushed together. So throughout the match, uh, conflicts become more and more frequent. Mm-hmm. It's insane. I've, I've won it several times. I've probably won it like maybe 15 or 20 times or something, either on solo or on team matches and stuff. And, but it's insane, though, because you basically have to outlast 100 other people, 99 other people to, to survive to win. Wow. So when you win, it like really means something. Hmm. Oh, it's a crazy game. It's been, it's been all the rage since like December when it came out on Xbox, it was out on computers before that, but it's kind of still in, it's kind of still in, uh, it's not in a finished format right now, but it's a, it's a really good game basically. Mm-hmm. So nothing like the hunger games. <laughs> Uh, it's like the Hunger Games too, I guess, but it's you know it's based on Battle Royale right. to some degree. I mean, it's it's its own property or whatever, but it's uh, I see. Yeah, it's it's a good game though. It's cool. very solid. Like I mean, the tension, the hunter be hunted. Uh, you know, find you got to drop there. You got to find loot. You got to you know fight other people constantly. Hmm. Sometimes you just try to avoid people. 
I mean, like, I don't, I'm not a high kill getter. Some people get like 20 or 30 kills in a match if they're, you know, if they have a really good round, which is insane because basically every time you engage somebody, there's pretty much a 50 50 shot that they're going to kill you. <laughs> so if you can do that 30 times and roll the dice 30 times and still come out ahead, you're pretty damn good. But um, mm-hmm. I usually average about three to four kills or something when I win a match or something, although I've gotten up to seven kills. So I think seven in one match was my max. Mm. But yeah, it's crazy. Huh. Yeah. So, anyways, here we are, 2018. This uh, our clown of a fucking president gets a second uh, Supreme Court justice pick because it looks like I don't know uh, justice. You know, is it Kennedy? Mm-hmm. Wait, who, which one's stepping down? Kennedy. His, yeah, his son, like, loaned $10 million or something to Jared or some shit or something. Who knows? Yeah, what he was executive was. at Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Which we know they've been a big front for Russian money laundering for a while. It's been reported for a long time, so. Yeah, this is, uh, it's, you know, this is the point where, you know, all those clowns who couldn't, you know, bring themselves to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton and, you know, there but for the grace of God go I because I was, you know, sitting there looking at the two ballots. I had one filled out for Green Party and one filled out for the Democrats and I finally, after about an hour of looking at them both, I I thought, you know, uh, you know, I gotta I gotta go with, uh, you know, the thing that's not gonna result in American fascism, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I voted for Hillary, but you know, I could have gone the other way, but uh, I'm glad I didn't because you know, it, it you know, it. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say it would be totally immature to have gone the other way, but because Hillary Clinton basically gave a constant middle finger to people who were Bernie Kratz mm-hmm. throughout the whole procedure, which was a you know. The woman's not a campaigner. It's, I mean, she just does not electrify people. And the people she pisses off, she doesn't make any effort to get them back. So, mm-hmm. But, I don't know. There's a lot of blame to go around, of course. I, Again, I don't want to get back into all that. It's, you know, it's two years old. But, I don't know. You know, for everybody who voted the other way, I mean, here we go, you know. Trump's going to appoint a young conservative justice. And I, you know, I've, I've had my misgivings about the Supreme Court as a branch of justice for a long time. Because, and, you know, I'm not, I'm, we're talking about it now because it's an issue now, but this is stuff I've been thinking about for a while. It's just like, I don't really know how we can say that. I mean, I know we have to have three, three branches of government because, you know, that's how our country is built. That's the checks and balances and so forth. But I think we've all got to stop pretending that. Supreme Court justices are these impartial people who, you know, stoically interpret the Constitution to issue wise rulings on things. I mean, most of the time, they're just total partisan hacks, right? I mean, like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, I mean, uh, I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as much as the next guy, as much as Anthony Scalia, right? I mean, like, it's like, uh, you know, I'm not going to say I don't, you know, one of them isn't wrong and one of them isn't right most of the time, but it's like, we've got to stop pretending that these people are wise, you know, beyond anybody else or that they, you know, 
it's just like, I mean, they look for a justification to support their political view, and they go with that, right? I mean, like, I don't know what percent of the time. I'm not a, you know, not a legal scholar. I didn't go to law school or anything like that. I'm sure, you know, there's a million law school graduates who'd like to jump down my throat right now and telling me why I'm wrong and these are principled individuals and stuff or whatever. But it's just like, I don't know. When you can have people consistently come down on opposite sides of issues when they're all supposed to be, you know, adjudicating off of the same document. Uh, I don't know. You know, it's just you can't pretend that they're anything other than political operatives, basically. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the interesting thing was, I think, wasn't it Kennedy that was appointed by Reagan, right? Okay, yeah. So, you know, he was appointed by a Republican, and he did vote, you know, with the conservative wing very often. But at the same time, he was a swing vote. Like, he wrote the Ogre Oberfell, the gay marriage decision. Uh, he was the yeah. Yeah, deciding vote on that one. And he's been on the, the correct side of some other things. And so, you know, he was considered yeah, like I think, the... I think from what I've heard, there were a handful of decisions like that. I mean, it was not... You're right. You know, those were the exceptions more than the rule. Sure, sure. But, I mean, it would never and be I, you know, Antonin Scalia, for example. Like, he would always be voting with Clarence Thomas or whoever. Yeah. But, you know, at a time in our history when, you know, most thinking nonpartisan people or even, you know, partisan, partisan people or, well, I mean, just anybody who's not a Trumpist basically acknowledges that America is going through a very ugly period right now where... Um, you know, the rule of law, you know, the untouchability of our leaders, people being above the law, various things, you know, people supporting basically probably treason. Um, for a Supreme Court judge to think that now is an okay time to, to step aside and give Trump another choice, it's, you know, it basically makes every other decision they've ever made in their life moot because they're an idiot, right? It's just like they are you know, playing willy-nilly with uh, American democracy. How bad does Obama look right now for not forcing Merrick Garland through? Yeah. I think, you know, any critique of Obama from the left wing has to say the guy did not play his whole, you know, when he had some bad hands and he had some good hands, but he'd never played the good hands to the hilt, you know? He never, like, I'm kind of mixing my metaphors here, but you know, even when he had a decent hand, he would just, you know, kind of wait around and hope somebody else would do the right thing or, you know, hope that by making the Republicans look, you know, he'd put the shame on them somehow and they'd do the right thing at some point. And they never do. They never did. And he just, I don't know. Like like Mitch McConnell's going to take that if he can get it. And he got it. So, you know, and there was no rule that said that he could do what he did when he did it. It's just he'd made up a new rule. Oh, no, no appointing Supreme Court justices before in the same year as an election yeah, year. Everybody's pointing out now, you know, he said no no new appointments during election year. And, of course, now it's an election year. And, of course, we, we don't even have to ask. We already know he's going to push this yeah. appointment, right? Oh, of course. He's, he's not going to wait that. until the Democrats sweep through everything and get their say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, the hypocrisy, again, hypocrisy doesn't matter anymore tagline of the show uh, but yeah just the, I mean the craven you know 
hypocritical, uh, just disgusting, you know. It's 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 just you know choose your negative ad- adjective mm-hmm. basically. So, well, I mean the the conclusion I've kind of come to is that the Democrats still think there are rules to this, mm-hmm. and there's no rules left. It's Calvin Ball. You remember Calvin Ball from Calvin and Hobbes? Yep. You make the rules up. This is every time, and you never play the same way twice. This is this is exactly what that is, and the Republicans have figured this out, and that's why they're running the show right now because they know that the rules don't matter, and they're just mm-hmm. you know running circles around everyone else so and this is and the stupid thing is this is how you come to non-democracy basically mm-hmm. at, w- at what point does continuing to believe in a functioning democracy that no longer functions become foolishness you know mm-hmm. yeah because either the either the republicans are going to you know, have pretty much subverted democracy or the Democrats are going to wise up and do the same thing. And at that point, it's just a race to see who can get there first, right? Mm -hmm. But either way, this is how you destroy democracy. There's a logic to it. And we always say it can't happen here and stuff, but this is how it happens. Mm -hmm. One party goes way off on one side, it unbalances the other party, and somebody winds up in control and the other party never recovers. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. Yeah, it's it's maddening. And you know, I'm 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 fascinated. Like people like Jimmy Dore on the Young Turks who I'm surprised hasn't been fired by that channel yet, but you know, there's a there's this extremely hyper loyal kind of cult of uh of Jimmy Dore that, you know, thinks that he's the only good thing left on the Young Turks when he's the most misguided person there basically at this point. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, I don't seek his show out anymore. I'm not subscribed to him or anything anymore because after the election, he lost his damn mind. But, um, but I'm just fascinated to hear what he's going to say about this because this is the thing that people were telling him. It's like, you don't understand. You can cast your protest votes for whoever you want, but there are lasting consequences. You know, the Democrats are not going to mount a revolution and throw the Republicans out permanently and form a permanent Democratic majority or whatever you, whatever fantasy land you're living in where you think that Trump getting elected is going to be a better thing than Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to happen. And now they've got the Supreme Court for the next, you know, basically the rest of our lives probably, the next 30, 40 years, however long it's going to be. And, you know, so congratulations. In 2016, you said, you know, Trump that bitch or whatever. And uh, here we are. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Anyways, I don't know what else to say about it, but it's uh, it's it's one of those things. You know, there's the daily injustices of the Trump administration and the daily outrages and the just the, the constantly, you know, doing the wrong move at every single opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's annoying. It pisses us off. It's frustrating. It's maddening. It's doing lasting damage in a way. But this is one of those moments where there's no coming back from this, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, legal decisions that have the ultimate force of law in America are going to be made that are going to shape the next half century, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know? <laughs> It's, it's, I mean, this is one of those things where it's just like, this is not something that the next president's going to be able to undo with an executive order, you know, 
So, yep. I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on no, it? No, it's just, it's all bad. I don't even know what to say anymore about it. Um, yeah. You know, the people got to vote this November, though. It's just, it's got to be. Because yeah. this is like I, a new reason. Like, in, you know, and, and I guess the only play they really have left is to try to hold this out until after the midterms. But, you know, even then, you know, Republicans always vote more in midterms anyway, and now they've got really a reason to vote if you're going to dangle a Supreme Court justice behind it. Um, I imagine they're going to have their Supreme Court justice before the election. Do you think so? Guess. I think so. Mm. I don't think they're going to dilly-dally around here. I think uh, Trump Well, I mean, Trump got a prank phone call. I saw this story when I woke up this morning. I saw that. He got a prank phone call from a former person from, like, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh Serious XM guy, what's his name? Howard Stern. Dirty man. Yeah. One of Howard Stern's former guys or something did a prank phone call to the president, which was put through to him on Air Force One. And he asked him, what's going on with this, uh, you know, this Supreme Court pick? And Trump says, oh, well, you know, I'm thinking in the next two weeks or so, we're going to put somebody forward. I got a list I'm working off of and all this stuff or whatever he said. Sir, your call is connected. Hi, Bob. Hey, how are you? How are you? Well, congratulations on everything. We're proud of you. Congratulations. Oh, Great job. You went through a tough, tough situation. And I don't think a very fair situation, but congratulations. Thank you so much. And, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. President, but obviously my constituents are giving me a lot of beef about this immigration thing. I know that you did something really noble, like, you know, by trying to, you know, get the kids back with their families. But I have to answer to them. What can I tell them that you're going to do in moving forward? Bob, let me, let me just tell you, I want to be able to take care of the situation every bit as much as anybody else at the top level. I'd like to do the larger solution rather than the smaller solution. You know, we do them, they're doing them step by step. I think we could do the whole thing. You know, I have a good relationship with the party. You have a good relationship with the party. And I think we could do a real immigration bill. We have to have security at the at the border. We have to have it. I mean, look, you got 60% of the country, they've got to have security at the border. And that's a good issue for the Democrats too, Bob. It's not like it's good for you or good for me. It's good for both of us. People oh, no, I, are I tired of, you know, of the problems. No, I understand that. But, Go ahead, yeah, but, no, but I am... Um, I am Hispanic, so I have to, you know, I have to, you know, I have to, I'm sure you understand, you know, so I have to, you know, I have to look good to my, you know, I have to look good to my people as well, you understand? I agree, I agree. So, Bob, here's what, let me do this. I'm on Air Force One. Uh, I'm just coming back. We had an amazing rally in North Dakota, actually. Yeah, I saw the speech. Uh, you know, I saw the speech. It's going to be good. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough race. You say it again. I, no, I saw the speech, and I thought it was, I thought it was a great speech. But um, if I could just ask, if I could just ask you one more thing, you, you know, you know uh, Mr. President, um, as far as the new justice, I'm sure you've heard, I'm sure you know that Justice Kennedy is retiring, and you know, right. Justice Kennedy. And Justice Kennedy was a Reagan appointee. Are you, I'm begging you, are you going to go more moderate or do you think you're going to go more conservative? Well, I haven't looked, I mean, I have a list of people 
I have a big list of people, Bob, and uh, we'll take a look at it. And uh, we're going to make a decision. I'll probably make it over the next couple of weeks. Because I promise you, you will have my vote. I will help you if you don't go too, too conservative. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, we will talk to you about it. We're going to probably make a decision, Bob, over the next uh, over the next two weeks. We'll have, I think we're going to have a really good – we have some great choices. And uh, be done over the next – 12 to 14 days. All right, well, please, you know, you know, keep me informed, and, uh, you know, good luck on your trip, and thank you so much for taking my call. You take care. I will speak to you soon, Bob. Take care of yourself. All right, thanks. Thanks, Mr. President. Thank you, Bob. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, Bob, I'm He's He's not going to wait. He's going he's gonna to do it soon. And you know the Republicans, what they're going to do. They're going to go, 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 go. So it's it's going to all be over before the uh, before the November. Mm-hmm. I bet I bet everything in my in my bank account on it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's where we're at in that <laughs> respect. Pretty much. All right. So the wires. That's right. <laughs> Season three. See, this is people. You know, people may wonder. Um, you know, in the future, and when they when they listen back to the you know the history history of this time period, what did you do? How did you maintain your sanity and stuff throughout these uh, you know like daily uh, outrages of the Trump administration? It's it's because motherfuckers, we've got a life, right? <laughs> we do things. We we consume media. We think about it. We you know, I'm a member of a book club. I read books. We discuss them. I hang out with people. I go out. I drink beer. I eat food. I talk to people. I work. I you know. I need to go back to the gym, and I will. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, we do these things right in our lives, mm-hmm. and the shit show in Washington is just a you know. It's something we we deal with it as we are able. We you know want to do something about it when we're able. Uh, but yeah, this other stuff, the, the wire, these things, these are other things that we're dealing with right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to maintain basically. Yeah. I still have to pay my bills even with this going on. <laughs> yeah. So, but all right. So first, what are your first thoughts on season three being over now? I mean, you've seen season one, yep. season, season two. I feel like you've really come around on this show. Mm-hmm. What do you think of season three? I, th- I think it like, I think it comes to a boil at the end and it's just a ma- it's you know there's a cathartic masterpiece aspect to the last two episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really really good. Um very solid season all the way through. Um I think the plight of Bunny is uh, very interesting as his whole experiment with Hamsterdam and how that played out was was very interesting. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if you wanted to start by talking about that but yeah, and I think this is something we talked about last time that <clears throat> I felt like was kind of a a thought experiment. It was not something that would ever actually happen, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was an interesting thought experiment because I feel like David Simon really, you know, he, it's it's not just kind of like you know some stoner like, man, wouldn't it be cool if they made drugs legal and everything be better? Like there'd be no more crime and nobody die or get sick and you know, police wouldn't you know. It, it, it's not just a uh, you know a, a pipe dream, so to speak. I mean, mm-hmm. he shows the good and the bad. And 
then he ultimately he shows the political backlash to it and the uh-huh. the almost um, what can we say the inevitable response of well-meaning politicians who are, you know, trying to think about it, trying to look at it for a couple of days and see if they can make it work and square in their minds. And ultimately they decide, no, I, I have to come down on this. I have to come out against it publicly. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah, it was like yeah. a race to see who could, who was going to take the blame for this huge success that they'd had. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I, in the end, that's, that's where it kind of came down to was that wasn't the federal government going to come in and take a bunch of money from the city if they didn't like do something about this yeah i'm and i i can't remember at the end if it was the federal government or the state government i think i think later we find that um in Baltimore, Maryland is a very democratic city and a largely Republican state to some degree or something. Yeah, and so, right. so the people, I guess Annapolis, Maryland is the actual capital, I think. Is that yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And so the people in Annapolis are mostly Republicans and they, you know, they are never too hesitant to, to want to beat up on Baltimore, the kind of this democratic outpost. And so, so when they, you know, when they have a case like this, that gives them the ammunition to do it. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think yeah, it's uh so much to get to in this episode. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I started taking notes somewhere around episode seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got some good ones. I thought it was fun. What did you think of Tommy Car- Carchetti? Uh, he seemed like an ambitious guy that's willing to do what he needs to do to get to the the mayor's spot if he can. So. Yeah. Yeah, that may be the only way to do it. I think, um, I mean, I thought it was interesting to watch him kind of go from this, just a city councilman on, on some sort of, a, I don't know, it was a criminal justice subcommittee or something like that. He, he basically, you know, the police chiefs have to report to him and he beats them up in public sometimes. And then he makes, he goes around behind the back and offers them like, look, I'm not going to stop beating up on you. Give me access to information. If you tell me what you need that the, the mayor is not doing, if you kind of backdoor the mayor for that, for me, I will stop beating you up in public and I'll make it an issue where you get what you need. Mm-hmm. And the mayor suffers, and you know Burrell, Commissioner Burrell or whatever I think mm-hmm. is like. At first he resists, and then he gets his ass handed to him at the at the council meeting again, and then he comes back to him and says, "Okay, I, I need something from you. So look, let's just do this." And sure enough, Carcetti delivers it for him, and so they, he kind of establishes this connection. Mm-hmm. Um. He has, I, I think, in episode seven, there was he had a campaign meeting basically um, at his house with his wife and the woman. What's her name? Um, D'Agostino, I think, Italian name, I believe. I forget her. I forget if it's. I forget her first name, but apparently she was kind of like his college girlfriend or something. But now she's a political consultant for Democrats, and so she's helping him get started on his campaign. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting in that scene that they, they had, I mean, these are, you know, they just come back from the Baltimore streets or whatever. And now they've got these, you know, three upper middle class white people in their house talking about a political campaign. And they're playing the song in the background, Cheryl Crow's uh, Man Enough to Be My Man or whatever. I think that's the name of the song. Hmm. Which was, a, I think, a very interesting song choice because it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, is Tommy Garchetti man enough to be the mayor? Is he, you know, is he, the, is he, you know, real enough to, is he, you know, qualified basically to be this, to, to run for this position that he wants? 
Right. So that's a good point. You, know, you got lyrics in there like "Lie to me, I promise I'll believe" and stuff. And so there's all that like kind of regular all politicians lie kind of you know cliches and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't notice that that song was playing, but yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So in the meantime, the the D'Agostino woman ends up hooking up with Jimmy McNulty. <laughs> for better or worse. Right. Which I thought was also a very interesting subplot. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what did you think about him and her together? So, she was she the one from the docks? Where, who are you talking about? The docks? Wait. Uh, no, the political consultant. Oh, her. Oh, you're yeah. thinking about... Uh, Sorry, I was thinking about the last episode of the season. Where, um, no, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Uh, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, she's kind of scary, but um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, she's a she's a political operative. True. Um, I, I thought it was interesting to see. I mean, this season seems to be set during the 2004 campaign at John Kerry versus uh, yeah, W. Bush. I noticed that. And I think it's interesting to see Jimmy McNulty just does not, he's not politically aware. He doesn't know what's going on. He feels like whatever's happening in Washington is totally disconnected from whatever's happening in the streets of Baltimore where he plays, right? Mm-hmm. And so this woman is coming in, he feels like he feels like kind of an idiot next to her because she's not interested in what he's doing, doesn't really take it seriously. And he doesn't even understand what she does, really. And she doesn't provide a lot of answers. So, mm-hmm. And there were a couple of times where he tried to watch the news. And he's, he tries to watch. He, he had gone to her her hotel one night to hook up. You know, told his kids, like, I'm going out. I got to do something. I'm leaving my cell on the dresser if you wake up or something. And yeah. all this and stuff. And then he, he skips out. He knows Jimmy McNulty being a bad dad again, but. Although, you know, at that time of night, probably nothing's going to happen. So, yeah, whatever. But, um, and she, like, after they hook up, after they have sex, she's watching political analysis of the debate. And they're talking about this and stuff. And mm-hmm. so Jimmy Milty's like, I got to go. And she's like, stay. And he's like, no, I got to go back and stuff. So he goes home and he turns on his TV. And he's watching some history documentary about uh, World War II, which is very... Tony Soprano esque. Yeah, right. And then he switches over to that same the same political analysis show, and he watches it for a couple of minutes, and then he's just like he's not into it, so he switches back to something else that's more his speed. Yeah, he seems to be kind of a uncomplicated guy in that respect. So it's yeah, it was it was interesting. I forget what one he was. Yeah, I think it was the conversation you're talking about where he tries to like articulate how it's all it's all the same. Bush Kerry, who knows? You know. <laughs> Yeah, I can't stand people who do that. Like, oh man, Democrats, Republicans, it's all the same thing, man. Basically, at the end of the day, no, it's know, there's there's, no, there's no difference. I promise. Really not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, when you talk about corporatism and so forth, yeah, it's a problem. But and you know, some people might say that social issues are distractions, but I don't know. For lots of people, they're not. They're well, yeah, it's their lives, so. so it's not a distraction for them. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, I think let's see. Well, I thought another interesting arc in the season was Bubs and Johnny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bubbles. 
and Johnny. And spoiler warning: at the end of the epi- at the end of the last episode, Johnny has died. Mm-hmm. He's OD'd in Hamsterdam, mm-hmm. you know. And they find his body when they break the whole thing up, and it's uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. That was you know affecting. This is a guy that we've known. He's not as seasoned as Bob. He doesn't know the game as well and stuff, and he's. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't there I mean, that scene like, before there though, where they're like, "You should keep slamming that. They're gonna, they're gonna die or whatever. You're gonna fall out or you're something. You're gonna fall out. Yeah. Yeah. And and he and he and Bubs had kind of had a, a falling out after a, they'd run a scam on somebody where they, you know, Johnny goes up and chases mm-hmm. off Bubs after Bubs is shaking the ladder that the guy's up right. on, and the guy gives the money to the Johnny and stuff, even though Johnny. At that point, looks so weak he can barely run to chase the guy off. He's not a credible threat, <laughs> but you know they're playing this kind of half-hearted scam. And and Bubs, he comes to split the money with Bubs, and when he comes there, Bubs is gone. And that's kind of like you know Bubs is stepping back from this thing, and he's he's trying to make money in more legitimate ways by selling t-shirts and stuff in the in the Amsterdam and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's got a new guy to school at the end of the season, right? Yeah, the cycle continues here. So yeah, but um, I, I thought one interesting thing about the the Hamsterdam thing is that you know a lot of people went in for it, and you know oftentimes for very good reasons. I think you know as far as users, dealers, and certain police, right? Um, and you know Furk and Carver is something we're gonna have to talk about too. Um, Herc was disgusted by the whole thing and, you know, mm-hmm. um, Carver fully invests. In yeah, he's like playing basketball with everybody. Uh-huh. He's playing basketball with everybody. Yeah, and they moved that body when there was a murder in Hamsterdam. He took the initiative to move the body out of Hamsterdam to preserve the uh, to preserve the the well, I don't know what you even call it. The uh, I don't know <laughs> to preserve the uh, operation that they were doing for Bunny, mm-hmm. Bunny Colvin, and Herc was the one who finally went and called the uh, the newspaper to alert them to this situation, and. He just didn't have any patience for it. Like I, I feel like there were certain white officers and a couple of black officers as well who were disgusted by this. They didn't feel like it was what they should be doing as police to be allowing and encouraging and sanctioning legal drug sales, really. I don't know. The Herc and Carver falling on opposite sides of this, uh, this deployment. Mm. I don't want to give spoilers because things go in different ways in a lot of ways, but they, they go in separate ways, I think, after this. And, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're not as buddy-buddy as they had been before. Hmm. Yeah, I kind of got the sense I, that they were growing apart a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, the, the thing is there were certain people who totally bought into Hamsterdam, mm-hmm. and they tended to be more naive people, perhaps. And yet, you know, the more cynical people... And the more seasoned and the people more invested in the game and more loyal to the game, as it's defined in this show, 
never fully went in for the Hamsterdam thing. I think when Bubs first walked through Hamsterdam and he, you kind of get this horror show mm-hmm. of, you know, just depravity, people having sex out in the open, people shooting up, doing drugs in the open, people vomiting and stuff. And he's just walking through with wide eyes wide open and he's, you know, taken aback by it. Um, Omar, Omar's uh, boyfriend at one point, they're thinking about where they're going to hit next to rob the drug crews. And his boyfriend shows him this spot and he says, look at this place. It's wide open. There's no guns. It's, it's, we totally take this place. And Omar says, drive bro. We're, you know, this is, this is a setup or something. You know, he, he recognized this was outside of the game. This was something else. This was not something that he could understand. And he moved on from it. Um, uh, Avon Barksdale didn't have a lot of interest in it. Stringer Bell was hesitant at first, but then he sent people in. And I think like the Stringer Avon thing is a huge thing we have to talk about this season too. Mm-hmm. But you know, basically Stringer is consistently pulling away from the game, and Avon is has no interest in leaving the game. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, that that obviously comes to a head. There are kind of many skirmishes leading to the final uh, battle between them, I guess. Um, I'll tell you one line that stuck out as kind of clunky in that final big exchange. I figure it was like episode 8 or 9 or something. uh, Wherever they have that fight at the end of the episode, you know, when it all kind of comes to a head. Is is this the one where, where, you know... Where Avon says, "How many bodies you got on you, or something?" He's like, "Well, you know, you remember your nephew who's in jail." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Well, that's somebody. That's a body I've got on me." Yes, and Avon is. Exchange. He's been shot with shotgun pellets earlier, trying to go after. Uh, there's just so many things to talk about. I mean, Marlo. We haven't even gotten to Marlo here. Mm-hmm. Dear God, at that point, you know, and then they wrestle for a minute, and Avon is not in a condition to fight, and Stringer Bell's, you know, he's tough as hell too, but um. Yeah, at that point, I don't know. You know, Avon has a kind of heart, right? As messed up as that is to say for all the fucked up things he's done in the past three seasons. But, um, you know, things like respecting the Sunday truce, which Stringer totally ignored, things about not killing family, which Stringer totally ignored. I mean, it wasn't Stringer's family, but still, you know. He and Avon are, as they repeatedly say, like brothers. And uh, uh, Stringer, you know, Stringer is, uh, I don't know, he's a calculating guy. And he's, his, he doesn't follow the game in some aspects the way that that Dan, uh, Avon does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, before, I'd kind of compared them to... Uh, Jay-Z and uh, DMX. How do you mm-hmm. feel about that? That's a good analogy, yeah. Well, the line that I was talking about in that uh, exchange was actually emblematic of that difference because mm-hmm. Avon was like, you you bleed green, I bleed red. Um, which was slightly too, I thought that was that was probably true and that probably a succinct way of putting the difference between them, but it sounded a little bit clunky coming out of his mouth somehow. I don't know, I just didn't buy him saying that somehow, but I, I get what he's saying and I get the dichotomy that, that's going on there, but 
I don't know. I feel like you yeah. would have chosen different words or something to say that with. Let's like, I don't know. The writers are writing a bit too much there. I don't know. But yeah, I think the show has moments like that sometimes. I mean, it's almost inevitable when you're writing dialogue this good that sometimes you're going to overreach or something's not yeah. planned correctly. Yeah, exactly. But like ninety five percent of the time, they're like they're banging on all cylinders. Basically. Oh yeah, no, and that's what the only reason I notice the times like that is when it doesn't work for me. But yeah, so you're gonna get, talk more about the uh, explain the difference with the Jay Z and uh, DMX. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like you know, Jay Z, you know, he basically, you know, after he got big and stuff. I mean, he and DMX seemed tight as hell and everything. And for a while, Ja Rule was in that bunch and stuff. But Jay-Z can't, almost can't help but make money, right? <laughs> Which is kind of like Stringer. I mean, he's addicted to the business aspect. And DMX can't help but get his ass thrown in jail, which is a lot like Avon, I think, mm-hmm. it, you know. And just, you know, DMX rap always sounds like he's on the hunt, on the street, killing people left and right. Jay-Z does that bling-bling thing quite a bit more, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm talking about old Jay-Z. I don't even, I haven't even really listened to his last couple albums. I don't know what he's up to now, but you know, it's he and he and that Beyonce are on the on the marriage thing now, so mm-hmm. he's matured perhaps. But um, but yeah, I mean Stringer and Avon are on the one hand they're 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 two halves of the same person or something. They're like you know they 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 need each other to to run this business effectively. They you know they both obviously contribute things to this partnership that the other one just lacks, mm-hmm. and I, so I think that's fascinating. Um. But in the end, you know, their their approaches become irreconcilable and they betray each other, right? Because, yeah, I mean, there's just so many interlocking things to talk about. But because the end, uh, because uh, Stringer has had this good relationship with Bunny Colvin as far as he appreciates the Hamsterdam situation, and he realizes that Avon's going to mess everything up. He's going to get him thrown out of the co-op with Proposition Joe and all those other guys by continuing the war with Marlowe. Um, and he's going to mess up everything for them. He drops the dime on Avon, and he tells Bunny where his uh, where his warehouse is, basically where he's going to be with all his weapons. And mm-hmm. Bunny, in his last act as a police officer, basically before he's drummed out of the organization, uh, gives that to, to McNulty, and they... He gives it to Daniels, and they do a raid, and they take down Avon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surprised to see Poot at the arraignment when they when they got them. I didn't see Poot as a as a soldier necessarily, you know, in the in the gun house at the end when they're about to go hit Marlowe. But I guess he was there. And on the other hand, I'm talking about the betrayals. Um, Avon told Brother Muzone where to find Stringer, where he's going to be doing his business there at the the, the uh, properties he's trying to. Uh, you know, fix up. And Brother Muzone uh, kidnapped uh, uh, kidnapped um, Omar's boyfriend and held him hostage to get to Omar. And then he and Omar went. And spoiler warning: they they shot down Stringer Bell, which mm-hmm. was you know what a scene, right? That was a, that was a great one, yeah. I mean, I thought like Stringer's acting at that point was amazing. Yeah, like. You know, I can be a better friend to you guys alive. If it's money you want, and Omar's like, you still don't get it, man. He's like, okay, I can see I can't reason with you guys, so come on, just do it. And get on with it, yeah. <laughs> get on with it, motherfucker, and then boom, boom, yep, boom. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. 
So that was, uh, wow. Yeah. And then, you know, of course they, they, you know, Jimmy McNulty is totally crestfallen when he finds out Stringer's dead because he, he's like, we got him on the tapes and we'll never know. We, we totally had him. We we're going to get him and stuff. You know, Stringer is somebody he's been playing with since episode one when he, they were both in the courtroom for D'Angelo Barcher. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like the height of Jimmy McNulty's narcissism that he like thinks that matters at this point. Like, it's like Stringer Bell's dead. You know, who cares if he knew or not? You know what I mean? Like, I know it's like it's frustrating because he put all this work into it, but it's like it's not. It doesn't matter, dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it does seem to suggest that Jimmy may be turning over a new leaf here because earlier in the season, Daniels had told Jimmy that because he's going behind his back and doing all these things and not respecting authority, he's no matter what happens at the conclusion of this uh, of this uh, operation, Jimmy was going to be looking for a new department within the police department. He was not going to be staying here. And then at the end, he has him in his office and he's he's giving a speech and he's he's you know you know like I can't deal with this having you here like doing this. So if I were even going to consider letting you stay, you'd have to promise that you're never going to. And Jimmy's like, it's okay, I'm gone. You know, it's not you, it's me. I need to get out of this unit and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's over. And so, and it was kind of an interesting reversal there because Daniel sounded like he actually wanted to keep Jimmy, he just needed Jimmy to, you know, make some promise, you know, let him say some face or something, or just show him that he actually did respect authority. And at that point, Jimmy basically does respect his authority, but he just realizes that he needs to do something else. And he, he ends up going back to, I think, is it Dee or Birdie or what was her name? Yeah, that's who I was trying so, to think of before from uh, from the docks. Yeah, yeah, the the police officer working the docks there, and in season two, and he goes over to her house and he's like, you know, I'm gonna stop drinking or something. She's like, well, you can come in for a drink. And he's like, yeah, maybe another time, but right now I'll just come in and see your kids. And he's he's like, you know, I'm gonna be a responsible, respectable man. I'm gonna do the right thing by you and your family. And you know, I'm kind of turning over a new leaf. I'm not gonna be a murder police officer anymore. I'm gonna be on something else. And I, he he seems to realize that this stuff is just not good for him. So yeah, Bert, yeah. Birdie. Mm-hmm. So it looks like they're gonna wind up together for some time here. So. Um. Yeah. Uh, what's your name? Um, Kima. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kima Greggs is uh, stepping out on her misses more and more. Are they even together anymore? Yeah, I think so. Because in the last episode, we, we got some hot lesbian action there for a few minutes, but then she gets a phone call. And she sees it's from her, her wife or girlfriend or whatever, and mm. she ignores it, right? And then that woman calls Jimmy, and Jimmy does the thing that he talked about of, you know, covering, oh, she's, you know, checking in a witness or something, or checking in a, a convict or something, and, like, they take her gun and they take her phone when she does that. So I'll have her call you call you back when she gets the message. <laughs> so he's covering for her. So she's, you know, behaving badly, I guess we could say. Mm-hmm. I sort of thought after that one fight they had, it was just over, but I guess not. Yeah, yeah, it's a mess. <laughs> um, uh, after, well, let's see. Um, 
Daniels' wife, right? Mm-hmm. Marla, I want to say. Mm-hmm. She's running for council or something. She's running for city council or she's doing something. She's running for Unetta Perkins' um, mm-hmm. seat, I guess, who is somebody who was on the mayor's ticket before and he supported her. But everybody, like the whole time, the whole season, she's kind of a name that you hear. And everybody's talking about, like, where is she? She kind of, you know, has stopped doing her duties, stopped showing up to meetings and stuff, and nobody knows where she's at. She's not with them anymore and stuff. Actually, we see her in the final season. Yeah, I was going to say, we saw her right there at the end after Carcetti gives his big speech or whatever. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because, like, you feel like you know so much about this person. Even though you're seeing them for the first time right yeah. there, and you're like you've been hearing about her the whole time and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, it seems like um, that um, Daniels's wife is going to be able to run on her own mm-hmm. uh, with the mayor's support and stuff. And at that point, Daniels doesn't make a secret of his affair with uh, uh, Perlman, uh, prosecutor Perlman. Uh, anymore he takes her to a nice restaurant they drink some wine she's like why are we doing this why are we out in public now and stuff she's like i think my wife's gonna win on her own we're we're in the clear now so we can you know do our thing mm. sure that was a nice change for her as opposed to like just randomly seeing police officers after dark <laughs> I, I think she likes it either way probably <laughs> but yeah you're probably right about that but um yeah. Well, uh, kind of going back, I don't jumping around a little bit, but that speech Carcetti gave at the end, um, I thought that was a really mm-hmm. interesting uh, kind of juxtaposition with the speech that Bunny made. Uh, it was either an episode or an episode or two before that about the difference between policing and uh, being in the military. You know. Okay. Do you remember that speech? Um, who was he giving it to? Oh, I don't remember. It was like right before Amsterdam kind of went up in flames. Uh, it was to somebody in his office. I forget who he was talking to. Anyway, was he was. It Carver? Just, it was yeah, was it I, yes, yeah, yeah. It was Carver. I think it was after Carver moved the body. Yes, yeah, you're right, that's what it was. Um, he's like, you know, it's you just see everything as occupied territory when you think about it in a military way, and uh, it's different than policing. And you wanted to see me, sir? Let's see. I want to thank you for the loyalty you showed, moving that body. It wasn't the most sensible thing, but uh, I appreciate it nonetheless. You're a good man, Sergeant. You got good instincts. And as far as I can tell, you're a decent supervisor. But from where I sit, you ain't shit when it comes to policing. <laughs> you don't take it personal. It ain't just you. It's all our young police. Whole generation, y'all. Now you think about it. You've been here over a year now, Carver. You got nobody looking out for you. Nobody willing to talk to you. That about some of them? And that's a problem. And I didn't think there was any way I was ever going to get my head around it. But then those of me get shot for some bullshit. And that's when I about reached my limit. And that's when the idea of the free zone of, of Amsterdam come to me. Because this drug thing, this ain't police work. No, it ain't. I mean, I can send any fool with a, a badge and a gun up on them corners and jack a crew and grab vials. But policing, I mean, you call some a war. 
And pretty soon, everybody going to be running around acting like warriors. They're going to be running around on a damn crusade, storming corners, slapping on cuffs, racking up body counts. And when you're at war, you need a fucking enemy. And pretty soon, damn near everybody on every corner is your fucking enemy. And soon, the neighborhood that you're supposed to be policing, that's just occupied territory. You follow this? I think so. Look at the point I'm making, Carl, is this. Soldiering and policing, they ain't the same thing. And before we went and took the wrong turn and, and start up with these war games, the cop walked a beat, and he learned that post. And, and if there were things that happened up on that post, whether they be a rape, a robbery, a shooting, he had people out there helping him, feeding them information. But every time I come to you, my DEU sergeant, for information, to find out what's going on out there in them streets. All that came back was some bullshit. You had your stats, you had your arrests, you had your seizures. But don't none of that amount to shit when you're talking about protecting the neighborhood now. Do it. You know, the worst thing about this so-called drug war, to my mind, Just ruin this job. I just thought that was a really good speech. I just really thought he nailed it, like what the difference is between the two. But then when Carcetti gave his speech at the end, when he's trying to be, uh, kind of have his moment in the sun there at the end, uh, I noticed he kept using the words like battle and uh, winning and like, you know, it's like all the things that, that Bunny was like railing against, but he's using the vocabulary of like battle and war and stuff. So, yeah. And actually at the end, when, uh, Rawls and uh, Burrell get to shut down Amsterdam. Uh, I think Burrell said, "What did he say?" He said, "Over the top, gentlemen," mm-hmm. which is obviously you know World War One trench warfare kind of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, and he played that and he march playing of the Valkyries or whatever. <laughs> the Valkyries. Yeah, I, which I felt was a little bit too uh, apocalypse now. You know, yeah, right? It was a little bit melodramatic, a little bit over the top. I didn't completely buy it, but you know, I think him just saying over the top you know, delivered the message that this was a return to military style policing, you know, you know, uh, yeah, arresting people, kicking in doors, you know, locking people up, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah, so that was definitely, you know, return to that. Uh, so, um, what are the, the police brutality, um, I feel like, you know, in 2018, like, we have a different attitude towards police brutality than they did when this was made. And I think that uh, David Simon has a somewhat of a cavalier attitude towards it, you know? Hmm. Um, rightly or wrongly. I, I, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because, you know, even even Bunny Car- uh, Colvin, who is, you know, the most, you know, he's he's just... You know, he's he's a liberal wet dream as far as a police commander, right? He does all the stuff that they want him to do, that they would want a police officer to do uh, in regards to the drug war. But he does say at the beginning, you know, anybody who doesn't move off their corners and come to the designated zones that we're giving them, you guys can fuck them up as much as you want on the way to the jailhouse, you know, 
etc. <laughs> like you know, be as brutal as you want, and I'll protect you and stuff. Anything like in except where somebody can't walk out of the emergency room, I'll back you up on it or something and stuff. And so it's like, you, you know, obviously in 2018, after you know Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, that that kind of that kind of attitude doesn't uh, age well. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, like in the show, he he's the he's the bleeding heart bleeding hearted liberal, right? It's mm-hmm. like, so yeah, I mean, what do you think of that? Like, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, we do. We definitely have a different uh, take on that kind of now. And I, I often think about what would happen differently if this show was made now, and that's definitely, I think, one of the uh, aspects that would have changed. So, yeah, yeah, David Simon, if you're listening, <laughs> season six, can we bring it back? <laughs> I think there, there, you may have a few more things to say at this point. Yeah, right? yeah, just a few. <laughs> let's get, let's get the old gang back together. <laughs> the hoppers, the hoppers, and the runners. Um, from the beginning of the Hamsterdam, they the, the 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 dealers quickly realized that they didn't really have a need for all these kids hanging around the corner anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And they didn't need to pay them. They didn't need to keep them around there. They should, you know, they kept them out of school for years to do this work, and now they suddenly didn't need them. And, and, uh, I don't know, it was interesting, you know, from an economics perspective, this was kind of like a, a microcosm of the idea of, you know, socialism versus ruthless capitalism and stuff, which in a way drug dealing represents ruthless capitalism at its, you know, at its core and stuff mm-hmm. as, you know, movies like Scarface and stuff have made that point before. But um, I thought it was interesting that Carver came out as kind of like this this socialist stand, and he he basically told them, "Well, oh, you guys need to pay a tax down here, a hundred dollars a week, and I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to divide it up for all these kids because mm-hmm. you guys have kept them out of school. They don't have anywhere else to go. They don't have any opportunities now, and so you know they're still going to be on the payroll whether you need them or not. You know." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did and, think that was uh, an interesting uh, element of it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so that uh, that was a hilarious, well, not hilarious, but a very interesting, uh, just, you know, as a thought experiment, Hamsterdam gave a lot of ground where a lot of different ideas and thoughts and, and philosophies could be explored, I think, and that was one of them, definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. So it, was, so it was interesting to see Carver as socialist or something in that in that light. Um, yeah. So at the uh, at the uh, at the end there, when they break it up and they arrest everybody, and they've got Bodie in the uh, interrogation room, and he's like, "That's one of them contrapment things." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, that was... I mean, that's that's probably true for everybody there, right? I mean, how can they actually prosecute any of these people if Burrell's going around giving explicit instructions to them that, you know what I mean? Like, how how is this, I mean, I'm sure people are going to get convicted of their various crimes, but you know what I mean? Like, how do you convict anybody in that case if they were given the green light, you know? Was he saying that just yeah. because they pulled him over and gave him the drugs back, or... No, I think I don't know. I think uh, Bodie's uh, Bodie's mindset has evolved over you know three seasons, and he you know he's been put in and you know had people trying to get him to talk and stuff before, and uh, you know I think he's wising up to the fact that you know what 
some of his rights are as far as like, you know, and, and as, as uh, McNulty says, he has a point. We did kind of entrap him because some police told him that this was okay to do. And uh, yeah. And I don't know if that's to some degree, if that's a part of that might be McNulty's self-preservation that he had caught this guy with all the cocaine and or, or the drugs or whatever. And he let him go. Or if it's just a fact that, you know, Brody's just kind of a guy that he likes on the street that he knows and that, you know, I don't know if he's going to be let go just because he happened to come up with that legal argument on the spot or if he's, you know, mm. we'll see what happens next season. But, yeah, I guess so. But yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was a interesting take on it. I mean, yeah, the, I mean, a lot of people were caught in the middle here between, you know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing when it came to the police there as far as the season. So, mm-hmm. and again, this is a case where, you know, when people don't follow the game as it's played, as it has been traditionally played, the rules get confused, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, and things don't work the way that they're supposed to in a way. And so there, there is kind of like, even for the drug dealers, there's a there's an aspect that they can understand when the police are always coming through and roughing them up and throwing them in jail and, you know, harassing them constantly and stuff like that. And, you know, they do what they do and the police do what they do. And, you know, for a person like Brody, that, that almost makes more sense than this kind of this uh, hands-off approach. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, he he seemed to have found an advantage right there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry. This, the the problem with a list is that you know there's so many things that are all interconnected, so you're bouncing from one point to another, and you're not actually picking them chronologically the way you intend and stuff. So, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. Uh, what about um? Uh, I, I I listed this one as Adam and Eve on the hunt for burner cell phones, which is talking about uh, you, you know who I'm talking about. Oh yeah, man, you're the stupidest man. <laughs> I can't wait to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Uh, what was their name? Um, Bernard and Squeaky. Uh. Think of their name. <laughs> Bernard was a long-suffering boyfriend. <laughs> we could say that. I think uh, that's why I listed them as Adam and Eve, right? Because like he oh, was yeah. doing what he was supposed to be doing. <laughs> he was buy- he was driving all up and down multiple states, buying uh, mm-hmm. no more than two of these track phones at a time, so that they could sell yeah. them back to the the drug gang. Um, not making bulk purchases, so he wouldn't attract police mm-hmm. attention. But his girlfriend's like, you know, if you why don't you Bernard? Why don't you just go in there and buy like eight of them things? He's like, no, I can't do that. That's not what I'm supposed to do. And she's like, and then the next time they, they turned them in, she's like, I watched when you gave them that. They didn't even check the receipts, man. They just threw them away. You could totally get away with this and stuff. So she's like constantly tempting him and stuff. And suddenly he starts buying in bulk more and stuff. And she's like, yeah, <laughs> she, you know, he may have gone down anyways at the end of the show anyways, because, um, because of the wire and everything and all the stuff they were doing, but he didn't help himself by listening to squeaky and, uh, <laughs> you know, buying more than he should have at certain, certain, <laughs> so that was just, you know, every scene with those two was golden. I thought, yeah, I love when he like, finally, like just goes along with her and I just love the look on his face. He's like, he knows he's like, he's doing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was funny. Um, and I think like bubs knew her, Mm-hmm. Right, and so yeah. when the police got the thing where they were gonna they were gonna tap these track phones, the burner phones, 
um, before they sold them. And they were trying to figure out how they could sell them to these people. And he said, well, I know that girl. I used to know her. She used to, she, she looks better now than she used to and stuff. And he's like, well, so he arranged a situation where he bumped into her and he's like, well, I'm selling these white tees, but you know, I'm also, if you have a need for it, I'm also selling these, uh, burner phones, you know, really cheap. And she's like, Oh, Oh, I can definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Let me save my boyfriend a whole lot of time and trouble by, you know, mm-hmm. uh, using these phones that are, yeah already already marked and stuff so mm-hmm. uh i think like um for season three episode eight called moral midgetry i i said like a subtext for this one should have been avon barksdale no avon barksdale's no good very bad day because <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of crap happened in this episode. Mm-hmm. um uh let's see what what happened in there uh he his basically this was another one where his uh, conflict with uh, with his partner Stringer Bell intensified. Mm-hmm. And he said at one point, "Yeah, we the Trump brothers, or maybe the Chump brothers. I look at you, I see a man without a country, not hard enough for this right here, and maybe just maybe not smart enough for them out there." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a just a you know a very telling prescient kind of. Uh, encapsulation of, of Stringer Bell again, trying to get outside the game and trying to run with Clay Davis and, you know, getting screwed by Clay Davis and having Clay Davis take his money and, uh, you know, deliver things intermittently, but ultimately take more money than he was ever giving back and stuff. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I thought one really good line from Avon in that whole, I don't remember if it was in that scene or whatever, where he's like, what did I tell you about playing them away games? (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was a really good way to put it. It was like, yeah, this is not your home court. You're getting like rolled out here. You know, you're, the rain maid or whatever, as Levy describes it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but he's trying to be he's trying to be the player in that world. But then, really, when he gets caught up, his only solution is just to go back to the streetways because doesn't he want to like whack Clay Davis eventually? <laughs> so, yeah, he wants to get like Slim. He wants to get Slim Charles to do it. It's like I don't know if Slim Charles is up for this. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he's like you need you need some sort of a day of a jackal motherfucker, not a rough and tumble guy like Slim Charles to do that kind of job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was a great line. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was amazing. Like when he he's telling Slim Charles, he's like, "I need you to hit somebody, man." He's like, "Yeah, who it is?" He's like, uh, "Clay Davis." He's like, "The state senator." He's like, "I don't know. I don't know." You know, that's 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 kind of like outside my wheelhouse here. Yeah, exactly. And and it's and, you know, it, like he said, it's like he'll he'll murder anybody. But that's a that's a lot to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slim Charles, I think, was a is a character who is just a he's a local guy in Baltimore. I think I don't think he's a trained actor, but he yeah, does a really good job. He's it, actually so. a musician too. He's in a go go band, I guess. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think he does a great job. I totally buy him as the person he is in the oh, show. And he, me too. You know. Yeah, I'm a big he, fan of Zach. He's a thug who is dedicated to the game, but, you know, basically still follows the rules as far as he doesn't want to, you know, shoot at Omar when he's walking his mom to church or whatever to the taxi he gets to church and stuff. And he, you know, he's a cold-blooded killer, but he's he still follows certain code, you know. Yeah. As Omar has said, a man must have a code, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or maybe that was Bunk. I don't remember which one of the two of them said that in that right. conversation. Mm-hmm. Bunk might have said it, and then Omar said, oh, for sure, or something. I don't remember, but oh, indeed. wholeheartedly agreed. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was, yeah. So yeah, again, Stringer got in over his head with this guy, realized he was getting played by Clay Davis and was ready to kill the guy basically. And Clay Davis, Clay Davis, we have not even begun to see the true depths of Clay Davis yet, but Mm -hmm. it's going to be beautiful next season because he is a character Hmm. and you know, he, he is just such a, you know, you can tell he comes from the hood too, but you can also tell that he was never hard, right? He's like, "Oh well, man, that's the that's the faucet. We're gonna go to Annapolis and meet the faucet." He's like, "What's the faucet?" He's like, "Well, it's the faucet of money." And he's like, "And we're gonna meet the goose." And he's like, "Who's the goose?" Well, that's the goose that laid the golden egg. <laughs> you know, just like, who is this clown? Where you know, <laughs> hokey wisdom he's got going on and stuff. Like that. Yeah, Clay Davis is he is something else, I tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> Clay Davis, oh boy. So that was fun. Um uh let's see. Um I, I thought it was interesting when Cl- uh, when McNulty and Kima went to Virginia trying to track down video mm-hmm. surveillance. I was gonna mention of, this actually. Uh, yeah. Go ahead yeah, though. Of, yeah, of, of uh, Bernard and Squeaky buying the track phones, and they just were not having a lot of luck with it. And then they go to the local police office, and McNulty's like, let me handle this one. And he goes in there, and he's like, he assumes that everybody in Virginia is a bunch of racists and stuff, and this white cop is definitely a racist. And he's like, well, you know how it is. I'm from Baltimore. You know who's running things up there. He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know how it is. What do you call it when the you know the governor or the mayor is like, is you know, and the convicts are at the same barbecue or something. It's like, you know, catch and release or something. And like, and then the guy's kind of like playing along with him. But then like a black female cop comes in and kisses him on the head. And she's like, I'm going out. I'll be on the radio if you need me. He's like, oh, shit. I better put chemo on this guy, actually. <laughs> I, I've kind of ruined my credibility with this guy by making some assumptions about him. What what did you think of all that? Oh yeah, that was that was interesting. No, actually, that wasn't even the thing I was going to mention. Uh, the thing I was going to mention was back at the hotel room, um, mm-hmm. the magic fingers. Yeah, was he hitting on her right then? Yeah, I think huh. he was throwing it out there as an option. Wow. I mean, they both kind of laughed it off, but that's like, whoa. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I don't know. I think McNulty's the kind of guy because he didn't fully commit. He didn't actually piss her off too much. But yeah, obviously in 2018, yeah, hitting on your coworker who's a lesbian when you're a man is uh, frowned upon. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So, but that was yeah, that was an interesting moment. So yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, McNulty also stirred up some trouble near the beginning of the season when he went to. Uh, D'Angelo Barksdale's baby mama, who had been hooked up with Stringer for a while right, there, right. and he planted the bug in her ear that, you know, maybe D'Angelo didn't wasn't he didn't kill himself. Maybe it was a murder. And she went to his mother, and she, the mother went to Stringer, and mm-hmm. Stringer went back to Avon, and that whole thing, you know, that whole mess. What did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, he was definitely trying to stir something up there. I mean, it doesn't sound like he was gonna get too far with it legally i guess but you definitely put a bug in her ear so yeah and i I thought that was i mean the the mother character in that part where she 
came to Stringer and she knows something was wrong and Stringer's trying to be as dismissive and, you know, he's kind of gaslighting her as much as possible, basically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he says something like, uh, you know, McNulty's come, she's come to see McNulty and, you know, she was curt with McNulty, but he obviously was getting to her and stuff. And she said like, why'd you go to his, why did you go to his baby mama? Why didn't you come to his mother? It's like, honestly, he's like, I wanted to come to somebody who gave a shit and you were the one who tried to make him, you know, take the years for the Barksdale crew. So I didn't right. think that was you basically. Right. Yeah. And so she's, she teared up at that point. And then, then she goes back to, to, uh, Stringer and, mm-hmm. and Stringer says the cop shouldn't mess with a mother's pain like that. And she says, no one should. Mm-hmm. And he says, mm-mm. And I was like, whoa, that is, that, that's some deep, you know, lines right there. Cause you know, she, he, he's trying to like, oh, he's trying to get her on his side again against the police. And she's like, no one should, meaning like, not you, not anybody, not my brother, not whoever killed my son. Nobody should be messing with my pain like that. And he's like, mm-hmm, he agrees, basically. He's like, yeah, no, but it's like at the same time, you know, that was, wow. Yeah, that was acting. It took Ben Kingsley to acting school. Yeah, exactly. That was a good, uh, that was a good one. I like that scene. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, uh, <clears throat> I thought it was interesting also the, the degree to which Hamsterdam was self-regulating. I think this is something we kind of touched on earlier when, uh, what was it? You know, as far as, uh, with the, uh, socialism versus ruthless capitalism and stuff, mm-hmm. as far as, um, when there was a murder, in Amsterdam, right, and Carver moved the body out, but then, um, then uh, Colvin, uh, Bunny, Bunny Colvin came to the the mid-level dealers and he said to them, look, if you don't give me the murderer tomorrow, I'm going to come in here and shut the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they went back to Stringer and they told him, like, well, this is basically what happened. This one guy made fun of this other guy's shoes and the other guy came back and shot him. Mm-hmm. And Stringer's like, that's it. And he's like, do it. He's like, turn him into the police. We got to keep this thing going. You know, it's too profitable. And, you know, so the next day that guy was rounded up, brought in, beat up, and he just turned himself into the police. And then the other guys walked out the door, basically. And that was, you know, again, part of this kind of this thought experiment of what if drugs were legal in this place at that point? these violent drug gangs where they're killing people over nothing, basically sometimes like they have to self-regulate because they have a, you know, they have a, a stake in it. They have a, you know, they have a piece of the pie or whatever. Yeah. Now that guy's going to like go to prison for several years because of this. And now what, how long did Amsterdam last after that? Just a couple of weeks. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like that guy was on the path to amount to much anyway. True. The kind of thing he was beefing over, but <laughs> but I mean, you got to imagine. I mean, how many more months Amsterdam stayed open? You know, just think about how much more money that came in. I mean, I'm sure from a financial perspective, uh, nobody, you know, it, it was well worth it in mm-hmm. the perspective of the drug gangs. So. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Presbolewski. Tragic. (laughs) Yeah. Now, remember, I remember in the first episode we did about The Wire, 
you know, you're like, this guy's a total fuck up. He doesn't need to be a cop and stuff. And we've, in the last two seasons, we've seen him really come a long way as far as, you know, he's no good on the street. He, he's, you know, comically unlucky with guns, whenever a gun is involved, obviously tragically unlucky in this case. And this is his third strike basically. Right. I mean, he, he and McNulty were going to pick up some Chinese food and they got a call over the radio that there were shots fired you know, officers in pursuit of somebody or something in these alleys nearby. So they go over there and they're chasing people through the alleys and McNulty drops him and he's, he just comes around a corner and kills somebody. Right. And it turns out that was an undercover police officer who was wearing like the colors of the day on his arm or something like that. I think we'll learn later, which they didn't know about or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, and he, you know, he basically becomes, probably suicidal and realizes that being a police officer is totally over for him. Um, and he's, you know, most upset that he has killed a black police officer. So there's a racial element to that, the shooting. And, you know, he's, it's obvious that he's very humiliated every time he talks to Daniels or Freeman after that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, he wants them very strongly to understand that that was not something that was going on in his mind at that point. Mm hmm. Yeah, he should have just stayed yeah. <laughs> stayed at home that night. I don't know. Why did they go chase that call anyway? They're not like street cops anymore, right? Or they weren't. I, I think point. it was a case. I think it was a case where any police officers who were within the vicinity were being requested to, mm-hmm. you know, render assistance or whatever. But obviously, you know, not enough information was communicated about what was going on there. As far as there was an undercover or a, a plainclothes police officer chasing too, and. You know, yeah, I, you know, and it's again, I mean, we, there have been many cases I've seen, like probably in my life, I can imagine like five or so incidents where two off duty police officers get into a beef over a traffic thing or at a bar and one of them kills the other. And then they find out later that they were both police officers. And, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. there's a racial element to that. So this is, this is a real thing that happens. Sure. So that was, um, yeah tragic mm-hmm. yeah i feel bad for him yeah but again Pres Belusky still has an arc and uh, he's not out of the show yet so mm-hmm. yeah we'll see i i don't want to say much more than that but yeah mm-hmm. um what about okay uh did you notice by the way when um hi <laughs> I feel like you're going to need to chop this thing up to put all the pieces back in the places where they should go, because now I'm coming back to when, um, when brother Mazone and his helper guy, I know you're going to say um, were, yeah. <laughs> when they were chasing down, uh, uh, Omar and his boyfriend at the gay bar. Right. <laughs> right. And then we, and we pan you know back that, and see, <laughs> who do we see? We see Rawls, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Rawls. He's in his element in the gay bar, which is, <laughs> I love it. Hilarious. Yeah, that was, that was wow. And that's the, I, I'm, I don't want to spoil too much, but it never comes up again. There's never, I kind of got the sense that. that was just a one-off thing, just kind of an inside thing for the fans or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> that's, you know, that's wow. Yeah. Cause I imagine and in his, so, his public life, he's probably the most like outwardly homophobic person. It's just as much as any of the rest oh, yeah. of them. I mean, so but the thing is when you watch the first two seasons again and you see some of his language choices sometimes, like McNulty, you are a gaping asshole. It's like, hmm. Okay, <laughs> <a metaphor. laughs> Wonder where you thought of that from. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's got some, he's got some lines throughout the, the show that you, you know, when you rewatch the show, which I know you're going to do at some point, mm-hmm. you're just going to take them in a whole new light when he's using this kind of this scatological language or something earlier on and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, uh huh. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, he's, he's got the gay thing, uh, his, his under underling, uh, what's his name? The fat guy. Oh, that's good. Landsman, yeah. Jay Landsman's always looking at porno mags, and, you know, they're just both disgusting individuals as far as, like, the way they talk to people and treat people. <laughs> just, they're so gleeful to when they do it, though. It's 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 hilarious. Right. Um, what about um, Marlo? we got to talk about Marlo. I mean, we haven't seen too much of Marlo. He's kind of been in the shadows mostly this season. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that'll change. Four. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Avon, the stringer's dead. Avon's going back to the seal clang. And, you know, you know where that leaves Marlo. So mm-hmm. in the catbird scene. Um, yeah. What I mean, what about Marlo's dating woes? Uh, Devon's betrayal. Uh, so remind me what happened with that again. Okay. So this is the part where. Marlo was in a club, right? Yeah. And he's just sitting there in the back kind of drinking to himself, or not even drinking, so he doesn't drink. And this girl's looking at him, so he comes up to her, and he's talking to her and stuff. He's like, you know, why are you looking at me? And she's like, I don't I like your eyes. You got cat eyes or something, mm-hmm. which I think was very true. This guy has got cold, dead fucking eyes. He is a stone-cold sociopath, obviously. Yep. Yeah. And they go, like, they basically they go and hook up outside in his, in his SUV while his bodyguards are standing around, like, watching the SUV to make sure nobody attacks them. And then she's like, why don't you come to my house tomorrow? And the reason I say tomorrow is because the day after that, I got to go down to Georgia to see my aunt or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe we could do that. Yeah, give me your number. I'll call, I'll contact you and stuff. And the next day they end up meeting and he, he doesn't want to go to her house. He says, we'll go to a hotel. Mm-hmm. He's like, okay, where can I meet you? Where should we meet? Why don't you come pick me up? And he's like, no, I'm not going to pick you up. Come to this restaurant. Come there at five o'clock. Don't be late. If you're late, I'm leaving. And stuff. She's like, okay, I won't be late. So he, he's got um, Chris Partlow parked in an SUV outside with some people on a shotgun. And he's got Snoop, um, one of his, the female soldier there, also inside eating some fish sandwich or something. And she's watching another SUV outside. Right? Mm-hmm. And little do we know, but sitting inside that SUV is Avon with a couple of his soldiers. Mm. And somebody comes into the store and orders four of the sandwiches and stuff and four drinks and goes back out to that SUV. And she comes out and says to Chris Partlow, like, hey, there's four people in that car over there. And he's like, all right, we'll watch it. If they don't leave in the next 20 minutes or so, yeah, we're going to do something about it. And then this girl comes there to for the date. And she walks by. She looks at the, at the SUV with the Avon's people in it. And at that point, Chris Partlow just says, drive by him slow. And he blasts through the window with a shotgun and he... He kills somebody and he nicks uh, nicks Avon in the shoulder or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, in kind of a scene that just kind of comes out of nowhere, right? We see that girl leaving her house, right? Mm-hmm. She's just walking outside her house, and this guy says Devon or something. And she turns around to see him, and he shoots her two times in the chest. And then when she's on the ground, he shoots her in the mouth, and she's dead. Mm-hmm. And Chris Partlow basically says, "Well, it had to be done, man." He's like, "Yep." Mm-hmm. So wait, and so she 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 set him up? Yeah. Okay. And in fact, because after okay, at the we talked about the scene earlier also where um, where 
uh, Avon and Stringer were fighting at the end of the episode, and they're arguing back and forth, and they have that fight, and uh, Stringer admits that he had killed his nephew, uh, D'Angelo, in prison, had him killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that thing, he's like, you know, we got to stop the war. You know, Prop Joe's going to take us off the package there. They're going to vote to kick us out of the group and stuff because of this bullshit and stuff. And he's like, mm-hmm. you know what they did today? They, you know, Marlo killed the Marlo killed Devon. So yeah, and so you get the sense they both know who this girl is. Hmm. She's obviously loyal to their group or something, and you know, maybe a relative, maybe a friend. I don't know what the what the situation with that is, but obviously Stringer Stringer is is cowed by that statement. So he's obviously upset or surprised by what he's hearing and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, she had been she helped set them up. She was trying to set Marlo up from the very beginning, basically. I see. Well, it's hard to so, date when you're a gangster, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Sometimes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I didn't notice this the first time either, but um, I think Poot was standing on a corner earlier in the season, and he and somebody else were coming out with a drink from the, the corner store there and for, behind where they were selling. And then two people come up on a motorbike and spray the corner and the guy standing next to Poot gets shot dead and Poot's laying there in his blood and stuff. And then he gets up and stuff. I didn't realize at the time, but that the girl on the back of the bike was Snoop. Oh, okay. I think I didn't realize it because she was actually dressed like a girl, basically like mm-hmm. Snoop is often dressed in very, um, gender nonspecific style of attire, I guess we could say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I like Snoop. She's a good character. She is a monster. Okay. <laughs> We're going to, you know, yeah. Trust me. <laughs> Next season, no spoilers, but like, yeah, she and Chris Partlow are a couple of demons from hell. Okay. Basically. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, also, the part where um, when Stringer got killed, um, Slim Charles said, if it's a lie, we fight on that lie. Yeah. The lie being that that uh, Stringer was killed by Marlowe's people. He was not killed by, you know, Gay Omar and this Muslim guy. Mm-hmm. Right? He was killed by Marlowe, and they're going to continue the war based on that. Um, and, of course, this is timely because at the time, in 2004, yeah. you know, there was a lot of stuff going on with the Iraq War, mm-hmm. the lies about WMDs, etc., all that stuff going on. So this is very, you know... I don't know, the show, it just works on so many levels. You know, there's so many ideas and philosophies and events that are being analyzed through the prism of this show, right? It's just like, wow, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I thought that was a good, uh, I I made that connection also, I think. Yeah, and, you know, when the guy said, you know, they're putting this on you, and he's like, well, that's, that's okay, I'll take it on my jacket or something. This is kind of one of those good problems to have that if, if if Avon's going to say that I killed Stringer, that just makes that that increases my gangster cachet, I guess we could say, right? Like, I mean, so Marlo has no problem taking responsibility for this. Um, and then, and in the scene, a few episodes later, a few season, or a few scenes later, like you've got Snoop talking to some other people in Marlo's crew, and she's like, and so, and so Stringer was on his knees begging us not to kill him. He said he'd give us all the money, which you know is true. He actually did say something like that when he was going to get killed. 
and she's like, and and Chris said, no, you're about to die, motherfucker, or something, and like these guys are just eating it up and stuff, and so she is consciously propagandizing the fact that Marla was totally responsible for this, and that you know she and Chris were the ones who did it, mm-hmm. and so that that was just fascinating. I thought too that this is you know. You know this 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 lie is being agreed to on both sides of this thing for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another thing with Avon, I love the line. Um, you know, he's he's trying to explain like where he's coming from and stuff. Earlier in the season, he said, he said, just a gangster, I suppose, to describe what he was. He's not he's not going to be this real estate magnate or something and stuff and. You know, at the end of that thing, when he comes home from prison, um, you know, Stringer gives him his own apartment and stuff, and they they go out and they talk about, you know, we used to run these streets, and, you know, Mm -hmm. you were talking about uplifting the community, and you had that AK and stuff, and and they say, us, motherfucker, and Mm -hmm. stuff, and that's kind of like they're, you know, they're just tight as hell at that point, and then it all falls apart, of course, so. Mm -hmm. Although I thought maybe during that conversation, Avon was trying to, like, set Stringer up or something because he was like, what time are you going there or whatever? Like, he was very coy about, oh, yeah. noon-ish or something, you know, afternoon, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think, well, we, I, I think there were two scenes in that apartment, I think, and I think the first one might have been when he first gave him the apartment and there's another one later where they were talking. Okay, about I, I guess I'm thinking of the later one then, but... Yeah, and I, no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think, yeah, at that point he was trying to glean some information so he could give to Brother Mazona to set him up. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of double betrayal of, uh, you know, uh, Avon getting, you know, Avon getting Stringer killed and Stringer getting Avon locked up on charges that he can't beat, basically. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be able to easily plead down. So that was, uh, yeah, you know, Shakespearean, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. The another kind of tragic thing in the last episode or two was when Johnny had asked Carver for a five dollars for a bus ticket out of town, and Carver's like, "I'm not going to give you any money. You know, you're here at an open air drug market and stuff." He's like, "Well, I've already scored, so I don't need your money for that. I'm trying to get out of here." You know, that was kind of like his last cry for help before he OD'd in that place. You know, exactly. Obviously tragic that Carver didn't cough up the five dollars at that point. Although it's understandable why he wouldn't, but. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, yeah, it looks like a bad decision. But yeah, um, yeah. As a journalist, Bob, what did you think about the situation where um, Herc, you know, narked to the the reporter who came down there, and Bunny got wind of it, and Bunny went and talked to him and said, "Look, this is a you know tactical deployment. We're going to come down on them hard here soon." He's like, Can you, I need you to sit on this story. And the guy's like, I can sit on it for a week, but after that, I got to publish something. And then ultimately, when everything goes belly up, the other he's down there with the other reporter. He's like, man, a story a week ago when I sat on it. And I, right. you know, now I don't have the exclusive. Like, what did you think of that as a reporter? I, I sympathized with that reporter's dilemma because on the one hand, you know, he doesn't know how long Bunny's going to be around. So if he's got this scoop and he plays 
at Bunny's Way, it's possible that he'll be the first one on it, and he'll have kind of exclusive access. So I can see, like, in the moment why he agreed to that. And then, of course, you know, Bunny's no longer going to be a cop anymore, and, you know, everyone else knows about it, and they, they just ate your lunch right in front of you. So it's it's like, it's it's extra frustrating. So, yeah, I could totally see his dilemma there. So One character we haven't talked about who is one of my favorites in the season is uh, Cuddy. I like Cody a lot. Yeah, he's a definitely has an arc. Why did they let him out so easily, though? I I, I don't know. I think he served, I, his, I don't served think he his time gonna... admirably and all that. Is that why? Yeah, I think he served his time admirably. He was, you know, Avon is older, too, and I think, you know, this guy just approached him the right way and told him where he was at in his life as an older guy. And, you know, Avon was not worried about this guy, you know, being caught up in any, any other criminal activity and rolling on him or anything, I don't think. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, and I mean, you know, and what about that scene where he's, he's you know, he's trying to put together, he goes to the deacon. And I think I mentioned the deacon in the last mm-hmm. episode was uh, actually a, a drug player in the 80s or 90s or something in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And, but in the show, he's this, you know, a church man and, you know, kind of a pillar of the community. And he kind of sets them up and he says, you, you, you coach basketball? And he's like, no, I was always good with my hands. And he's like, okay, well, maybe we can set you up with a gym, you know, to train these young hoppers and stuff. And he's like, okay. So he does that, and he has a hell of a time getting approval and getting zoning and all that stuff that you need to do to open a business, which is, I think, a huge problem mm-hmm. to some degree um, because, you know, it prevents a lot of people from, you know, I'm sure it, <clears throat> it protects the public from people just, you know, obviously opening dangerous businesses, but at the same time, it prevents, you know, decent people from doing good work. Mm-hmm. So. But then the deacon like puts him in touch with people in the city who can get him the approvals he needs with no trouble, and kind of. Uh, and at that point, he goes back to. And I was surprised at this. He went back to Avon and was talking about, you know, look, I'm I'm looking for donations. If you can give any money to help us get the equipment we're going to need for this gym. <clears throat> And he's trying to like upsell him on, oh, you know, we're going to have the gold level and the silver level, and we're going to put like pictures scene, yeah. up on the wall. And he was like, you know, I don't want my picture on no damn wall. And he's like, <laughs> like but how much are you looking for? And he's like, ten thousand dollars is the gold level. You can do lower, you can do silver or bronze or something if you want. And he's like, and he's like, all this trouble over ten thousand. He's like, he's like, hey, go get this man fifteen thousand dollars. It's like, wow, <laughs> very, you know, and that may be, you know, the last generous thing that Avon Barksdale does. And that may be his lasting legacy to the degree that he has a decent legacy on the streets as right. a you know, philanthropist or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's Cuddy is in business there. Yeah, yeah, I appreciated his uh, journey. I'm glad he got out of the game. I was worried about him. Yeah, yeah, he is. Uh, he, he he's a he's a decent human being at this point. He is a just a genuinely good guy who's trying to do good work and trying to help people, trying to you know give something back to this community that he obviously you know terrorized in his youth to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's that pretty well. I think that pretty well covers my notes. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously, I don't know. What do you think about the season as a whole, as a, you know, the themes, the, the ideas, the drug legalization, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, burgeoning political careers, the, you know, the relationships amongst the people. In some ways I liked it better than season two. And mm-hmm. in some ways, I even liked it better in season one. Although I, I don't know if it like it had a lot of it went in a lot of directions, and I feel like we're like still building towards something, especially on the political end. So mm-hmm. I can't really say it was a totally satisfying season in a lot of ways. But I, I did like the um, you know those, the journeys we've been talking about of some of these characters we've been following since the beginning, like Stringer Bell finally getting got, and you know Presbolewski, and you know all these uh, all these storylines kind of coming to to a head uh yeah i think it's i think it's good i liked it a lot mm-hmm. yeah i'm excited for season four yeah yeah definitely season four is we're going to the schools which also i thought it was you know fascinating the um what's his name is it tony gray or tony i forget the guy's name uh uh, Tommy Tommy Carcetti's friend on the council who yeah, announces that he's going to run. He's like, I think I'm going to run. I'm going to take a run at the mayor. And he's like, I think you should. He's like, What's your main issue going to be? He's like, Schools. You know, we're, I'm going to I'm going to be the education mayor. And you know, Tommy Carcetti's like, Oh god, that's a losing issue. <laughs> you know, it's crime. Basically, he's thinking, but but he basically takes advantage of this guy who's his, his good friend. Mm-hmm. Like, they're really good friends. They you know they play racquetball squash together all the time. They're you know they're they work together closely. They, you know, politically are on the same wavelength and everything. And yet Tommy's going to use him to split the black vote so that he can try to have a, have a decent chance of hitting and running for mayor. Mm-hmm. basically. Well, and I think he kind of realizes that in that last scene, right after the speech, right? Yeah. Yeah. Tony, so he says something like after, after Tommy has finished his big speech, yelling at the police commissioners in front of him about their responsibility and about how, you know, we've all failed society by not dealing with this issue and stuff. And, and when he turns to him and says, you sound kind of like you're running for something. He, he looks mm-hmm. pissed off and betrayed as he should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is, yeah, that is something again. Yeah. Something happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really enjoyed also all the scenes after, uh, mayor, uh, what's his name? Mayor. Um, I can't think of his name right now. The mayor. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. After the, yeah. After the mayor finds out about Amsterdam, his, his policy sessions where he's trying to like, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a way we could just call it something other than what it is, you know, mm-hmm. I got a 14% reduction in crime. I mean, if, if we could just say it's legal and how they can argue with the reduction in crime, it's like, and everybody else is like, Dude, this is not politically viable. Like, <laughs> it's just got to be a way. Don't don't be so hasty and stuff. And then, like, and then when they find out, he's like, "Oh shit, yeah, we got to close this down and you know walk sideways, basically." Exactly. Um, and I mean, what did you think about that? Because basically, everybody who sees it for the most part agrees that it's performing a good for society. The, the communities are better served by this way. Policing is more efficient. Uh, you know, the drug gangs are turning in their own criminals rather than being kicked out of the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody basically agrees that it works, but 
when when it becomes politically unviable, they they crack down hard. I mean, Tommy Carcetti comes out against it, even though he had walked around in there or something and talked mm-hmm. to some people. Um, uh, the mayor was looking for a way to make it work before he couldn't anymore. Um, I mean, you know. Uh, you know, Rawls and uh, Burrell were totally happy with Bunny with the reduction in crime until they found out how he had done it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there was a human cost, in which we saw represented through Johnny, I think. Yeah. But, I mean, Johnny may have been on the way out anyway, so... <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I think Bubs is really reaching him before this, you know, before before he basically was allowed to do as much drugs as he wanted without any inhibitions at all. I mean, I th- I think the point of the season was that he probably would not have died. I mean, hmm. he had AIDS. I, I think he mentioned in season one that he got the bug or something. Right. Um. So life was not going well for him, no matter how you cut it. But I think the implication was that this this experiment killed him, you mm-hmm. know, and probably a lot of people died in there from this way. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I don't know. What do you? I mean, what's your what's your overall thing on Hamsterdam as as an experiment there? As a you know, all the good and all the bad that it did. Mm-hmm. I mean, from my perspective, it seems like it was a roaring success in many ways. Um, it seems like it was, yeah, not destined to last very long, just given the conditions that it was created in. But I just, you know, I just feel like whatever has been happening prior to that is obviously not working. So it seems like a radical idea like that would be something to at least explore, maybe in like a more organized way, maybe if like more people knew about it, it was more concerted effort. Um, But yeah, it was uh, some noble intentions on Bunny's part, but in, in the same way it's like he also should have known how it was going to end up so yeah 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 that was that was uh yeah it was an interesting thing definitely like you know this is it's the kind of thinking that tv shows just don't do Mm -hmm. it it leads you to think about a lot of things you know militarized police the drug war um the cost the criminalization the black market you know um miss misspent police resources in time money you know uh butting your head up against something that is never going to stop versus finding a way to channel it in a way that's much more productive for the communities and the police and the budget and everything mm-hmm. uh you know being able to focus on major crimes like what what Avon was getting ready to do at that safe house with all those guns and grenades and everything uh yeah i mean I'm, you know, again, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think David Simon, he paints a pretty rosy picture of it, and it may or may not be totally correct, but I think he did a decent job of showing some of the back, the downsides to it, but also showing that, you know, sometimes in the political world, politicians can't do the right thing, even though they see that it's clearly the right thing, because they have political considerations to keep in mind. And they won't be able to continue being politicians if they do the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so that was again. This is just like you know, this this is the kind of stuff which is why this is probably being taught at Harvard. Like this, mm-hmm. uh, I, I I think I don't know if it's continued now, but I, I think the Wire. There's a class on the Wire at Harvard, basically. So mm. because it it deals with these huge ideas, you know, and it and it deals with them in a very 
thoughtful and well, you know, considered way, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I liked it when the, when the mayor was like, uh, telling Burrell, Burrell, you're going to have to fall on your sword on this one. He's like, well, maybe I don't. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, maybe I, maybe I go to the press and I say that we briefed you on this weeks ago. <laughs> and like one of the Burrell's stuff is days ago. And Burrell says, he emphasizes weeks ago, you know, he, he knows he's lying, but he knows that they can't prove that in public. And that's what he's going to say if they mm-hmm. fuck him. And he's like, I'm going to lie about this and you can't prove me wrong and it's going to damage you just as much as it damages me and they're like okay 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 maybe we can work with you <laughs> so that was that was a fun scene i thought yeah yeah i did like I mean, that Bur- Burrell did not get where he got being an idiot so he knows how to you know sharpen those knives and play dirty politics so <laughs> um but again i i one thing i like about the show also I, again i feel like that's a phrase i'm using a lot but like they deal with, you know, things happening as a consequence of misaligned incentives, which is kind of like a, a, a governing theory in how I look at everything, right? Like when mm-hmm. something's wrong in society, it's a matter of misaligned incentives, right? Mm-hmm. I think at the, at the basic level, you can usually boil it down to that, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, it was a lot of this, I mean, this responsibility... Number one, it goes to the mayor. He said he wanted them to basically hold the murders at a level that was not 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 viable um, for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And so they the shit rolls downhill, and they put pressure on everybody below them to to just you know basically to cook the books and stuff and make everything look not as bad as it really was. And it was a, as a result of this this pressure from above that Bunny ended up becoming so exasperated that he just did what he did. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, very much the mayor and Burrell and everybody is responsible for what happened because they had set up this misaligned incentives uh, uh, regimen, basically, where mm-hmm. this was the, not the logical result, but the kind of the illogical result, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how are we going to, like, cause less murders to happen or felonies or whatever unless you do something drastic, so. Yeah, and there was even that point where after one of the meetings, um, Daniels and uh, and Bunny Colvin and people are getting on the elevator, and he's like, well, how are you going to how are you gonna reduce murders in your district? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I thought I might make drugs legal. And they all kind of chortle and everything and laugh, and, he, and you, you, you realize, like, no, Bunny is dead serious. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. It's like, wow, yeah. <laughs> so again, yeah, it's. I mean, everybody knows how he got there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Let me see. There was um, uh, also, again, we're just bouncing all over the place this time. It's almost better if I don't take notes. I think, <laughs> but um, at the end, when um, after uh, when. Uh, you know, McNulty is kind of despondent after Stringer Bell has been killed, and he goes back to his apartment. He, he finds his apartment there on the waterfront, and it's like a minimalist paradise of an apartment. And he goes in there, and he's he see he's just walking around, kind of in awe. And he says, you know, he sees the samurai swords behind the desk and everything, and he sees all the books, and he pulls one down. I think it was Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and mm-hmm. he just says, "Who the fuck was I chasing?" 
you know, this, this is not who I thought Stringer Bell was. And yet this is how he was living. This is, you know, he was a smart guy. He was, you know, he was changing out the chips in his cell phone so we could never get him on the wire and stuff mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, so at, at the end there, he, he kind of had a, had a realization about, yeah, he, he kind of, you know, yeah, he had seen parts of the hole, but he had not seen the hole. And then at the end, he kind of sees who Stringer Bell was, and he's just like, you know, awestruck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, any other thoughts or anything else? I mean, any predictions for next season? Any Anything you want to well, go like, on record with? <laughs> well, like you said, it looks like Marla's fitting to take over uh, it seems like he's in the, the catbird seat like I said uh, Stringer Bell's out of there Avon's out of there um, I'm not sure what happens to the rest of his crew I'm sure a lot of them got caught up in Amsterdam bust Prop Joe's still in the mix okay Prop Joe forgot about him Omar's still out there yeah I noticed that he made it Brother Mazone also out there although I don't know if we see him again yeah. Yeah. What did you think of uh, when uh, when Omar's crew were hitting up Von Stash houses and one of his his ladies got killed there? Uh, wait, who got killed? Um, I, hold on, I'm thinking of her name. I'm trying to think of her name. There's the two women that Omar was working with, and then his boyfriend as well. Uh, and they were hitting up that one stash house, and they had a running gun battle in the street. Yes. And his boyfriend turned around and mm-hmm. shot, and he accidentally shot that woman in the face, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was not good. <laughs> I think yeah. uh, Omar felt bad about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then, you know, the, the, the other woman was mad as hell. I couldn't tell if those two were a couple or not, mm-hmm. but she was furious, and she didn't, she was not happy, and... You know, when Omar made it clear that he was going to keep going after Avon and his crew, she said, look, this is your thing now. I'm not doing this for personal reasons. There's too many other stashes that are much easier to hit than Avon stuff right now. You're on your own, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think we'll we'll, we'll see continued interesting arc from Omar. In mm-hmm. Before. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of him. Omar doesn't disappoint. Good. Well, I probably ought to get going. I got to get some lunch here, so. Okay, yeah. All right, well, yeah, good talking to it. I'm I'm glad we we got through that season. I'm going to start working on season four this week, and we'll see where we're at next week. Yeah, I started watching the first season last night, but I didn't get too far. I just watched that intro scene with the nail gun. Oh, yeah. I figured that's probably going to play a part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, wasn't that creepy? Like, you know she's not, you know, repairing a house or something. She's not a contractor. She's not doing DIY work or whatever. Oh, we work work all over town. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the scene, and like that Stephen King was talking about when he said that she's the scariest fictional character ever created. Hmm. 
Interesting. And when I first saw that, I couldn't tell if she was a boy or a girl. Uh-huh. I didn't realize really who she was and stuff from this season. Because in season three, I wasn't really paying attention to her or Chris, Chris Partlow so much. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be huge next season. So Yeah. Well, I'll keep watching, and we'll keep discussing. All right, all right. All right, well, uh, yeah, we'll have a good day there, Bob, and we'll talk to you soon. All right, have a good night. Talk to you later, man. Yeah, bye-bye. If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. 
Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.